Welcome to the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast, where it's all about slashing your debt, slashing your taxes, and creating a liberated lifestyle. And now, your host, who met his wife while training for the 400 meters in Seattle and is eating gluten-free while lusting after bread, Dave Denniston. Hello, my friends. This is Dave Denniston, and welcome back to the latest episode of the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast. Welcome back to our monthly fireside chat with a physician to get to know their journey, their joys, and their struggles with finances and outside of finances. And as you know, this show isn't always about actionable content. It is, however, a chance for you to see behind the curtains, to walk in another person's shoes, and experience their lives. Now, our next guest, he is a man that is on a mission. He is all about trying to teach doctors how they can live healthy, happy, and debt-free lives to regain control of their practices, their time, and their finances. So that's a really cool thing. And I know he's constantly trying to make an effort to improve the life of his colleagues. He is, of course, a doctor. He is an author. He wrote a couple of books, The Doctor's Guide to Starting Your Practice Right and The Doctor's Guide to Eliminating Debt two things near and dear to my heart. And where is he from? He is from Oregon, and he really got this passion for wanting to help in rural areas. And at the time, there was just one surgeon in town, and now uh, he is giving some of that person a needed break from their pager to help keep rural surgeons healthy. So I can't wait to hear about his journey and his wisdom. Please help me welcome Dr. Corey Fawcett. Welcome, Corey. Hey, thank you. It's great to be with you. Well, I'm so glad you're here, too. I think what I really love about these Physician Fireside Chats, it's such a great way to share wisdom with us, to get to know your journey. And this podcast, it's about empowering physicians with knowledge on how they can slash their debt, slash their taxes, and live a liberated lifestyle. But before we get into the content and the awesome advice, tell us a bit about you. Where'd you grow up, and what was your childhood like? Well, I grew up in Medford, Oregon, uh, just over the California border, a little town, about 30,000 people. Uh, my father was a butcher. My mom uh, stayed home and raised us until we were older, and then she became a hairdresser. She went to school. and So I lived real close to my, my uh, grandparents on both sides. Um, and we had pretty great childhood. I played three sports, uh, football, basketball, and baseball. Uh, I was a referee for um, uh, baseball, uh, umpire actually, and assistant coach uh, for uh, Babe Ruth baseball. Uh, When my father kind of started doing that, uh, I helped him a little bit. And uh, I had uh, a pretty fun life. Uh, We didn't have a lot of money. Uh, My parents and my grandparents uh, never really talked a lot about money, but uh, I could see in their lifestyle, you know, they never borrowed money. If we didn't have the money for something, we didn't do it. Uh, there wasn't a whipping out the credit card and just, uh, you know, charging it. Um, we, uh, er, you know, paid, paid our way as we went. And I, I uh, went to uh, college and, and worked in the summer uh, in the plywood mills. Uh, it was a pretty good job for a kid uh, in the summer job, and I kind of worked my way uh, through school. Interesting. So tell me about, um, you mentioned this, so I'd love to get into this now, that they didn't really talk a lot about money, but they never borrowed 
money, it sounds like. Um, right. What was, was that something that your parents talked about with you? What, what was that influence uh, on money that you know that they didn't borrow money? What was, how did you know um, You just kind of, you know, as a kid, you can kind of hear in the background when they're talking to each other. They never really talked to us about money. Um, but I did learn, uh, you know, just from, from hearing them talk to each other occasionally. Um, and then uh, my grandmother and grandfather uh, bought rental houses. And mm. so I was, I was one of the, uh, their, their basically chief maintenance helper. Uh, Grandpa would <laughs> go to fix something. I'd go with him, and we would work on these properties together. And I kind of learned from them about buying properties. You know, there's, uh, it's a great investment because they're not making any more land, and everybody needs some. And mm-hmm. so Grandpa would, he worked at the mill too, and they would save up a little money, put a down payment on the house, and then the renter would pay the house off. And they'd save up a little more money and put a down payment on another house. And pretty soon they had, I don't know, close to a dozen houses. So I saw that from them. And they, were, they grew up in the Depression, so they were very careful with money. And, again, they never borrowed money. But, you know, that's something missing, I think, in America is we don't just sit around and talk about finance. We don't tell people what we're doing or teach our kids how we're doing it you tend to not ask people about their money and you tend to not yep. ask them about their weight, you know, <laughs> you know, how much do you weigh? How much do you earn? You know, you, those are questions that just people don't talk about. And, and they really didn't talk about it much at my house. I did have an uncle though, who was a banker and he hmm. talked to me a lot about money and he got me pointed in the right direction early on. I actually started a rock and roll band when I was a teenager and I was a manager of that. So I kind of got a, a feel for how to run a business. And then my uncle helped me out with uh, ideas of how to run a business and how to be successful at what you do. So he was a big influence as well. Gave me a little book called Common Sense. And that book, probably more than anything else in my life, pointed me in the right direction when I was very young. Interesting. I want to go back to what you're saying about your grandma and grandpa, that they, they had rental houses, because you said that they put some, saved some money aside and put down a down payment. So it sounds like they didn't buy it all in cash, so they weren't completely averse to debt necessarily. It was just maybe certain kinds of debt. Um, I think, you know, I didn't really know the details. That was how I thought they were doing it. Later on, uh, somebody mentioned that, no, I think when they bought them, they bought them all cash. Um, I know they bought one of the houses for a dollar. Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> I found out later, you bought a dollar for this house? Yeah, the friend was moving, left away, basically sold the house for a buck. It was a next-door neighbor's house, and they left. And they picked huh. up the house for a dollar. Um, they had that house for, you know, 50 years. They took collected rent on that house they bought for a dollar. Um, so I think they did have some debt when they were buying uh, the houses, but uh, they were making a substantial down payment so that the debt was safe um, and would get the tenants. The tenants would then pay off that mortgage. Um, so how, how, did, how, did that, how did that influence you then? It was real estate something you got into yourself then? Uh, in oh, early, yeah. early on, before medical school, after medical school? What did that look like for you? Um, well, when we started our practice, my wife and I, you know, when we moved here, um, we started out like normal, accumulated a whole bunch of debt. Uh, 
I, in the first chapter of the Dr. Schedule Eliminating Debt, I actually told my story about how I accumulated a bunch of debt and then decided to pay it off. But when we paid it all off, I had been in practice for about eight years and I became debt-free. And we were saying, okay, now what are we going to do with this money now? Are we going to have a whole bunch of extra money every month? What are we going to do with it? And we decided to get into real estate. And so um, I started buying uh, properties. Uh, I now own uh, 64 rentals. And up until a few years ago, I also managed them while I was a full-time general surgeon. Oh, wow. And so um, when you learn how to do it well and you automate everything, it, it, it doesn't take very much time. I, I manage 64 units on about 10 to 15 hours a month of my time uh, while I was a full-time general surgeon. And then you mentioned earlier on that I became, you know, working in these rural areas, helping uh, solo doctors get some time off. When I started doing that and traveling around, I could no longer manage the properties because I wouldn't be here. And so I then, a few years ago, had to turn them all over to a property management company. And so I haven't been hands-on managing them now for a, a few years. But for probably 12 years, I was the manager. So tell us about and that I'm experience also, of, of turning that over. I'd love to delve a little deeper into that. So you're, you're doing locums, it sounds like, um, locum, I, locums in, income? I, or I was. I was. Uh, I started out – I decided – I decided to leave my practice after 20 years. Um, I wanted to work part-time. Mm-hmm. And there was no way to do that in my practice. We just didn't have a mechanism that part-time would work. So I sold out uh, to my partners and began working this kind of like a locums. And then shortly thereafter, uh, one hospital system hired me to do two of their little hospitals one week a month and give their docs a break. And so while I was doing that, um, I, I actually hired a manager to manage my properties because I didn't really want a property management company. Um, that's a different environment than a solo manager. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to still be hands-on and have this manager. And one of the local uh, property management companies uh, ran into my manager, um, was talking to him, and they decided to hire him. So while I'm away, my manager goes to this company and he says, hey, I made a deal for you. I've, they've agreed to take all your properties, and they'll just manage them for you. No changes. You don't have to worry about a thing. We'll just swap them right over. And so mm-hmm. suddenly I had a property management company taking care of my stuff. It, it wasn't what I wanted to do. I would have hired a new manager, but I was gone. And I felt kind of like I was handcuffed. I had to just do that so someone was managing the property while I was gone. Um, it was way more expensive to have someone else manage the property. Uh, for example, uh, property managers can't do pest control. If somebody would call me and say they have ants, I'd go over and spray the ants. Mm-hmm. Uh, the property manager has to call a pest control company to come over and spray the ants. Mm-hmm. So what would have cost me managing the property a trip on the way to the hospital, I would swing by that apartment and spray around the house uh, and spray the baseboards in the room where the ants were, uh, it, you know, take 10 minutes of my time and no extra expense, now is a $80 call that, that the bug guys come out and do it, do the same thing. And then, of course, they'll say, oh, yeah, we need to do the whole house and we need to do the $600 treatment. And, and so it, it became way more expensive to do it that way. 
But still, that property, all by itself, after owning property for only 12 years, it was producing enough money to pay for my full retirement. Mm. So and the property actually went faster than my 401k savings got me ready to retire. In terms of, in terms of appreciation as well as cash flow, the two combined. Uh, I, yeah, well, I'm only talking about cash flow because you can only live off the cash flow. The appreciation doesn't help you. Mm-hmm. Um, it's nice on paper, but you can't spend it. And so the cash flow after just about 12 years uh, in, in real estate uh, was good enough that that alone uh, would uh, take care of me in my retirement years. So I would love, I'd love to know, Corey, I mean, what, what a great thing you've built up. I mean, it's just amazing to go from the son of a butcher and a hairdresser working under his grandparents and helping with rental houses to going into medicine. Um, when you were in, in residency, did you have in your mind that you wanted to do real estate for sure? You know, wh- where did you see yourself when you look back at, at your residency as you were going through that, that time period? Well, I always knew I wanted to get into real estate um, because I saw what it did for my grandparents. Those dozen houses took care of them in their retirement years just fine. And they didn't need to worry about having Social Security because that money worked. But I was the only member of our extended family to get into real estate. But I always wanted to do it, and it was kind of always, I was a little too busy, and I'll do it later. Uh, you know, residents are pretty doggone busy. They they got no oh, yeah. business getting into real estate. Uh, they got enough uh, to deal with just to learn medicine. Um, <clears throat> so as a resident, um, I rented the entire time. I actually tried to buy a house. It fell through. I'm glad I didn't get it. Had I got it, I would have lost a lot of money. Um, and I advise residents today, don't even consider buying a house. Just rent. You know you're only going to be there for a short period of time, and then you're leaving. Yep. And you might yep. leave when it's a down market. You might leave when you can't sell the house. Uh, if it's a short period of time, you're not going to recover your closing costs. Um, almost always a resident is going to lose money. Uh, they're not going to think they lost money because every resident I ask who bought a house says, oh, yeah, I made money. I bought it for 200000 I sold it for 220 and then they kind of leave out all of the expenses that they used during those four years and all the interest they paid and the taxes they paid and the, the um, upkeep they did. They leave all those numbers out and just say, see, I made $20,000. But the reality is they almost always lose. When I ask them, okay, let's, you made money. I, I hardly ever see somebody who made money. Let's analyze that so we can see it. Can you gather up all your expenses, right. all of the taxes you paid, all of the, you know, the, the home improvements that you did, all of the interest you paid, you know, and then let's, let's add them all up and let's see how you did because I'd love to have a positive example to show people that sometimes you actually can make money on a house. Um, so as a resident, I didn't get into real estate. I didn't buy my own house. I rented. And my wife and I, uh, when we got married, made a deal that we were only going to live on half of our income. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a resident salary. She was an accountant for a carrot company, and hmm. they um, uh, paid her about the same as I was making. So we decided we'd live on one income and we'd save the other. And so I actually, as a resident, was contributing to my 
retirement plan and fully funded both of our IRAs all through the residency. And so I ended up, I actually wrote an article for the White Coat Investor on that very thing. You know, the money I put away as a resident is now worth about a quarter of a million dollars. And if I leave it alone until I'm 70, it'll exceed a million dollars. Just the money while I was a resident. Well, and I would, my fellow I would, residents wouldn't do it. Well, I'd, I'd love to know in today's world where there's so many residents that have $300,000, $350,000 in student debt. If you were in that situation today, knowing what you know, how would rental real estate fit into the picture? Let's say you're now a practicing surgeon and you have three dollars $400,000 in student debt. When would you start real estate? Would you try and invest in real estate immediately? What, when would that come into picture for you, knowing that you have this, this huge load of student debt on your back? Right. Well, back then, I would have said, as soon as I get debt-free, then we'll get into real estate. And that's what we did. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I, what I didn't know was that you can buy real estate with no money down. I didn't mm-hmm. know that when I began to get into it, I actually bought a course on how to buy real estate, no money down. And I read it. I said, okay. And I went out and bought a million dollar piece of property for no money down and cash back at closing. And then the next real estate book I said, I read said, Oh, I don't believe any of that. No money down stuff because it doesn't work. <laughs> and I'm really glad I didn't read his book first <laughs> because uh, we ended up buying uh, almost all of our properties uh, with no money down. And so knowing that I can do that, uh, you could do that at any time along the way because, you know, you don't need money. Um, If you did it conventionally, you know, you're looking at a down payment of 20% or 30% for a non-owner occupied piece of property. And in that setting, I would work real hard on getting all your debts paid off first. So you're talking about doing that process. Doing like owner financing, for example. Sometimes uh, they were owner financing, but not all of them have to be owner financed uh, to get no money down deals. Um, turns out there's lots of ways to do that. I didn't know about it uh, until I learned uh, that. And when I read that course, they showed you, you know, here's 50 different ways to do it. And then I got the idea. Oh, I see how this works. And then I went out and did it a different way, 51. Uh, <laughs> You see the pattern. This is how you make a no money down deal work, and uh, I was able to do that. I think most people will think they can't do it. Uh, when you talk to people, they say, "Oh, yeah, that would have worked before, but it doesn't work now." Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet, my son did it last year, so it, it, yeah, it always works. You just have to find the deal that will work. It's not a time thing. It's not an era thing. Uh, it's finding the deal that will work. Uh, in fact, my son, he bought his first rental property last year, and his accountant uh, talked to me uh, this week as we were getting the taxes ready, and he says, wow, your son sure got a deal on that. Mm. <laughs> you know, and my son, just out of college, uh, has already bought his first property, um, and his first rental property, and so he's doing uh, real well. But he didn't have a physician's debt load uh, along the way. Uh, we were able to totally fund his college for him, so he was able to walk out of college with no debt. 
Well, what a and, blessing. Well, I, uh, well, well great just, blessing, yes. Just to, to keep on moving on, Corey, so with 64 different rental properties and perhaps some others that you've held and, and sold along the way, I'd love to know, and I'm sure our listeners are just sitting on the edge of their seats wondering, well, what is maybe the biggest mistake that you've made that we can learn from in this process? Um, the biggest financial mistake I ever made was it wasn't in the property. Uh, you want one from just general or one from the property? Uh, we've been focusing on the properties, so let's let's talk about the okay. properties. Okay. We're on the real estate. Uh, yeah, I made uh, I made one big mistake. Um, there was one of the properties that the realtor I, I I found a realtor that was really great. He knew what I wanted. He this is what I'm looking for. He would look for it. He would call me about two times a year with a property that fit my recommend my my desires, and we bought one of the two usually. So we got about 50% of the purchases of the ones he brought to me because he knew what I wanted. So he came to me one day with one, and I penciled it out, and I said, you know, this property just doesn't pencil. Um, I think I should pass. I'm not going to buy this one. But he, he convinced me that this is a great piece of property. It's a great location. It's just what you want. It's around the corner from your other property. Uh, you really got to have this one. And so... I let him sway me into buying a piece of property that I already had determined was not a good buy. And that was a mistake. I would um, love to hear I'd love to hear more <laughs> about that. Like what when you said pencil it, like what what were you penciling in? Do you happen to remember that you said this doesn't look good? Like what what yeah. is that? Okay. So every time you buy a piece of property, the whole purchase, the, the whole purpose of this property is going to be to make you money. So if when you pencil out your estimated expenses of owning this property and the estimated rent that it's going to bring in, it needs to be positive. It needs to be bringing in more money than it takes out. If more money is going out than in, let's say it's losing $100 a month, how many of those could you own? Right. Yeah. Well, not very many because those add up fast and you've got to pay that out of your pocket. But what if the property is making $100 a month? How many of those could you own? Well, you is, can own is, an unlimited amount of those. Well, I have so to when I penciled it out, like it, when, this one didn't when, make money. When yeah. I look at those kind of things, I mean, you have to factor in a number of different assumptions, right? What what well, kind of assumptions were you were, were you baking in? Like, how much vacancy, for example? You know, do you factor in any vacancy? Right. Do you factor in um, um, a certain percentage that you need to keep in the bank for you know maintenance and repairs and and that kind of thing? How does that come in right. to what you're penciling? So, property is very predictable. Um, it's predictable, almost like in selling insurance. The insurance agent doesn't lose money because it's very predictable in this group how much it's going to cost us, how many people are going to die, how many people are going to get sick. So they kind of can predict that stuff. So property is that way as well. So you can look at your local uh, rental owners association, and they publish what is the current vacancy rate in the area. So you know what your vacancy rate is going to be in general. And I always fudge a little more. So if they say vacancy rate is 3%, I'd say let's pencil it at 5 So give mm. myself a, a good margin of error. So if it's a little more vacant, you know, I'm okay. Uh, you know rental repairs, if the place is in decent shape, 
tends to be in the neighborhood of $50 per unit per month. And I only buy apartments. So roughly $50 per unit per month. And that's held pretty true for me for a long time. And you figure in that, that expense. You know what the property taxes are. You know what the financing carry charges are going to be. You know the interest rate. You know how much the loan is. Um, these things are all pretty accurately estimated. There's not a whole lot of guessing in there because you can look at the area averages. I mean, you know exactly what the tax bill is. They post that. You can look it up, and you know what the tax bill will be. So you can get these expenses pretty darn close before you purchase the place. So you never want to buy a rental property that you haven't fully evaluated and you know what it's going to do. You don't just look at it and say, oh, wow, that's a cool house. Let's buy that one. <laughs> you want to make sure that that house will actually put money into your pocket. Uh, and most of the things I passed on, it was because when I would pencil them out, um, at the price I had to pay to buy that, it won't make me a profit. And so I would pass on that one and wait for the next one. And pretty soon, you guys got to be patient. One will come along and then, hey, this one makes money. And it really comes down to what the guy wants to sell it for. Mm-hmm. So my son is closing on his own personal home next uh, in two weeks, his first home that he's going to live in. He bought a rental property before he bought his own home. <clears throat> so... The first one he's going to live in, he actually bought that house, and when it was appraised, because uh, he's doing it with a conventional bank loan, uh, it appraised for 15% or so more than he's paying for it. Hmm. So he's buying a house that he's going to walk into that's worth more than he paid for it before he even gets rolling on the deal. That's great. Uh, that's a good buy. You know? Yeah, and so when you're going to buy it for for income, you got to be darn sure it's actually going to make income. Uh, many people who get in trouble with real estate, they just buy it because it looks good. I should have real estate. That's a nice looking piece of property. This is a good neighborhood. I'll take it. And they lose money on it. Um, they never bothered to figure out if it would make them money, and don't want to make that mistake. So I made that mistake. This guy, I already figured it out. This won't make any money. But he convinced me this is a great deal for my future. So I finally, I gave in and I bought it. Okay? Well, I bought that about 12 years ago and it has yet to make me any money. <laughs> I've, owned it the, I've owned it the whole time and it has uh, lost money. It, it has cost me more every year than it brings in. Um, Actually, until I think last year was the first time it actually was making money. So my estimates were right. This won't make me any money, and sure enough, but not only did it not make me any money, I bought it right at the peak of the market in the 2006 oh, or so. So um, this year was the first year that its actual value has returned to where I paid for it. <laughs> So not only did it lose money every year, but it, it, it lost uh, 25% of its value of equity. I was upside down on it for about seven years. Um, 
And because my other properties were making money, those properties were just covering it. It was only losing about $100 a month. But losing is losing. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. if it's not making money, it's losing you money. And you don't want to own it if it's costing you money. And I, I should have stuck to my guns. I, I, this isn't going to make me money. Why did I let him talk me into that? But I fell prey to my, okay, maybe it is a good deal. And I, 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 that was a mistake. That, that, that's great, great mentorship advice, uh, Corey. I, I think that's some really good lessons we're, we're learning here today. So thank you for that. And we're having to wrap up the interview here in the next few minutes. And I'd just love to know from you, if you're talking with a younger Corey that's not a practicing physician, that's a resident, and he just matched out of medical school, what advice would you give to him? Um, I think I would say two things. Number one, don't buy a house until you're three years into your practice and you know you're going to stay there. Mm. Until that moment, you're a renter because you're temporary. So don't do that. And number two, set up a good budget and live within your means. Stop borrowing money. You've spent eight years borrowing money to eat. Now (laughs) they're going to pay you. So now... Quit borrowing money. <laughs> and if a resident will stop borrowing money until he's got caught up, it will totally change financially the rest of his life. But if a resident gets into that, you know, I've been borrowing money all these years, and I get used to the term, uh, you have diabetic neuropathy. You've become <laughs> numb to the debt. You know, yeah. it, it, you've been in debt so long, you just borrow the money and nothing happens that you become numb to its effect, that you, mm. you come out of residency and you suddenly buy a $60,000 car on payments. And you shouldn't have. But nothing ever happened to you with all that debt you've done so far, so what's the big deal? Why don't I just buy this nice car? I, got, I can make the payments. And that attitude will get you into trouble. So I'd say, live within your means and do not borrow any more money. You're already... A really great quote from Will Rogers. When you find yourself in a hole, stop digging. And that's what residents need to think about. They're deep in a hole, stop digging. (laughs) It's time to go the other direction. That's great. I love it. Well, Well, thank you so much for being with us, Corey. Where can people find you? Where can they find your books if they want to get in contact with you? Um, My books are on Amazon, uh, easily found there. Doctor's Guide to Starting Your Practice Right and Eliminating Debt are the two books. My next book's coming out next month. It's on retirement and career alternatives uh, for the doctor who's ready to throw in the towel. Um, my website is drcoreyasfaucet.com, and you can get on my blog there and get some advice as I go along. I do one-on-one coaching for people. You can contact me through that blog. Uh, I'm findable on Facebook and YouTube and Twitter. I'm kind of all over the place. Um, but I would head to my website and uh, you can find everything you need there. Perfect. That was CoreySFawcett.com, correct? Yes. Perfect. Don't forget that S in the middle. You know, it's, No, Dr. Corey S. Fawcett, D-R. Dr. Corey S. Fawcett. Got it. Uh, All right. Um, 
All right, Corey. Well, thank you so much. That wraps it up for today. And in, my friends, if you would like to be featured on the next podcast, I would love to know your story. It would be my honor to host you because I know we can learn from your journey just like we learned from Corey's today. So make sure to contact me, Dave, at drfreedompodcast.com or on my website, www.drfreedompodcast.com. For the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast, this is Dave Denniston. Remember, my friends, remember to slash your debt slash your taxes, and live a liberated, liberated lifestyle. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Make sure to subscribe. Check in again soon. Have a good one.